Boom! Boom, okay. Welcome back to another episode of Elevated Perspectives Podcast. We are your hosts, Courtney and Justin. And today we are sitting down in Atlanta, Georgia with Romy. Yeah. Hi, everyone. And this one is super duper exciting. We cannot wait to get into this conversation. Um, so, Romy, you are a traveler, specifically focusing on budget travel with a mention to make on a mission to make travel more accessible to your everyday people who have nine to fives and have homes, unlike us being very nomadic. <laughs> so, we're super excited to get this other vantage point of what travel can look like for other people. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and I'm really honored to, to have it invited and to have been given the space. So I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation. Yeah, welcome, welcome. So, um, so before we start off, like, I want to hear in your words, too, like, how do you describe your content for budget travel and accessibility? Like, what is the inspiration behind it? Yeah, so my elevator pitch for Roaming with Romy is budget travel with a focus, uh, I'm sorry, budget travel with a socio-historical focus. Mm -hmm. And it just bridges together two things that are really important to me. Um, accessibility, um, which I'm sure we will get into in the conversation. Um, and appreciating and elevating um, a destination's people, uh, which includes its history, its culture, um, its all of the social complications that exist in, in these destinations. And mm -hmm. to me, that's important because I think it makes traveling um, to other places uh, responsible, right? And I mean, that is a whole other can of worms we can get into, but um, that's why uh, that's kind of the focus of my content to really um, bridge together and kind of find balance between the background, the history of a place and um, how to make it easier for people to go there in the first place. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love yeah. that. And we can jump straight into that can of worms because I I am curious. I know, especially, um, you know, post pandemic, um, there's like travel revenge. People are moving all over the place mm. and you do have a rise in like digital nomadism mm -hmm. where people are going to these hotspot destinations. They're utilizing the resources and they're not always taking the time to learn about the people there, what's going on politically or anything like that. Um, does that have anything to do with like part of your mission or have you always just been really passionate about like highlighting the socio-political climates and happenings and histories of the places that you visit? Mm, so it's more of the latter. So I do try to come in as a learner and position myself as someone who is here to learn. Um, and I also try, I'm, lately, I've also been more aware of not being the teacher after I visited a place because I'm not the expert, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I mean, I, I have not lived in these places abroad. Um, and even if I did live there, I'm still not the expert. I'm not from and of the place. Um, and even if I stay there for six months as like a digital nomad, that still doesn't, um, position me as an expert. So when I do make content and I do share what I learned, I try to do it from the perspective of this is what I learned as a learner. And I just want to share this knowledge, but by no means am I the expert or the teacher in this situation. So it is the latter, though I do have thoughts on what you said about the travel revenge and people just going out to, to kind of um, compensate for what they feel like they've lacked um, during the pandemic. And I don't, when it comes to the, the ethics of travel, which I know is a hot topic for decades and probably will continue to be, um, I don't think there's one answer. I'm not sure if there is one solution <laughs> um, or, but I, I think taking, I think building kind of a collective consciousness of being aware that 
when I'm coming into this place as an outsider, I'm entering this economic, political, social, um, biological ecosystem, and my presence here has an impact, and then trying to learn what impact does that have. Um, and most likely the impact will be simultaneously negative and positive, right? For a lot mm. of these destinations, tourism is an economic industry that is critical to the livelihood of the destination. Like that money is critical because money makes the world around. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it, that's the truth. The reality. It's just a reality of it. Um, so how do we take a reality? How do we take this reality um, and make decisions in a way that is most responsible? And and that decision may not be the perfect decision, right? Because we still may uh, leave an impact that can negatively impact something else. Um, but, you know, how can we do it in a way that is more sustainable? How can we do it in a way that is more responsible and more respectful? And I think that is possible. Um, and sometimes we just gotta, you know, control how, how we consume certain things, how we visit certain destinations. Like Hawaii is a big one that comes to mm. mind. Yeah. Hawaii is something I'm very passionate about because I, I did visit Hawaii for two weeks, a couple years ago. Um, one of the best, like literally that and my Japan trip was the best trip, best travel experience I've yeah. ever had. Which oh, I did Maui, Oahu, and the Big Island. Okay. It was literally the most magical for many for many complicated reasons. What the most magical trip I've ever had. Mm. Um, and I get it. I, and, and Hawaii has an allure that, with over tourism, will destroy. Right. So, like a lot of um, parks in Hawaii, a lot of these natural areas, like, you know, do ticketed entry, they'll limit the number of permits or the number of tourists that they'll allow per month um, in an effort to preserve it. And I think that can be a great model um, that we can do around the world. But then if people are greedy, right? And there are, and we have to think like there are some destinations in um, countries that don't have the type of resources or the type of access to resources like Hawaii as a U.S. state has. So if we're talking about developing nations that, you know, are having all these tourists come in and they're throwing all this money in this area, it's hard to say no. And it's hard to regulate the amount of traffic that comes in to preserve the land um, because people like it's it, it comes down to survival. Right. Mm -hmm. If that's how you make your living, that's how you feed your family. By doing these tours or by, you know, letting tourists come to this natural site, it's difficult to tell these people you should really slow that down because that's whether their kids get to eat that night or not. Yeah. So it's complicated. That's why I say it to Gilson. There's no answer, truly. <laughs> There's no solution. I know. I came in hot with this just, like, big question that probably we could discuss for hours, if not days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would say, I'll say that's my very long answer to that question. <laughs> That's good. I think it's complicated too. Um, and we run into that a lot, especially again, from the vantage point of being, you know, digital nomads and like really coming to places and setting up shop for an extended period of time. Um, and what you just said about Hawaii made me think of, you know, during the pandemic, you very much heard from the people on the ground, like, Hey, like, stop, stop coming here. Like yeah. we need you to stop. But then you still have other factions that are like no like come we need you to come and the mm -hmm. same thing after the fires recently mm -hmm. i know there were sort of like mixed like we need those dollars we need space mm -hmm. um so i love that you're so conscious about navigating that push and pull and you make sure to bring awareness to it because genuinely some people just don't 
think about it. Mm-hmm. They just say, this is a lovely beach. I want to go. I can know, go, you know, tourism dollars are a benefit to like the people there. So like, I'm going to go. And they never are kind of like pushed or challenged to really, you know, explore that more. Mm-hmm. I can't, couldn't have said it better. That push and pull. I think that's such a great way to describe it. And it's a dance. Like it truly is dancing around this issue. Um, but I think just educating, right? And that's where education comes in. If we educate ourselves and um, we try to educate others and more and more travelers become more and more aware, yeah. then it still won't be resolved, but it'll be better, you know? And that's all we, that's really all that we can hope for. I, I expect, mm-hmm. I expect the tourism to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I expect all the tourism to be everywhere. Like in, in Japan, wild, like so, so many tourists. Um, not, not a t- like, there's so many, most of the, the population of Japan lives in this dense space really between like Tokyo, Osaka, and um, Nagoya. But um, in Tokyo, I didn't sense it too much because there's so many actual local Japanese who live in Tokyo. But when I left Tokyo and spent time around Mount Fuji, oh my mm. God, just tourists like out the woodwork. Um, Tulum, of course, just came back from there. Lots of tourism. Uh, Brazil was actually interesting because, um, there are certain countries that have a lot of, a lot of domestic tourism and Brazil's one of them. So when we were in Rio in February for carnival, uh, a lot of the tourists there were Brazilian. So that mm. was cool. Yeah. Um, traveling around China, I've been to China twice, love China. That's such an underrated yeah. <laughs> destination, but a lot of barriers to entry there. But, um, China is really cool because there's a lot of domestic tourism there, which makes sense because both Brazil and China are both geographically large nations yeah. and, and have big populations. And there's a lot to see because it's a large country. That's true. That's dope. Why well, did you, I want to back up. I heard you say like China had a lot of like barrier to access. Mm. What made you say that? Is it just like the location or Mm-mm. was going there actually tough to get in? I mean, well, I think since COVID, no one's going to China, but China is open because there are some, Mm. I have some uh, creator friends. They had a layover in Shanghai and they was just out, just walking around, enjoying the, the skyline. I love Shanghai, by the way, Mm. one of the best cities ever. Um, But aside from the turmoil around COVID, even prior to that, uh, just the People Republic of China, it's, it's, it's the People's Republic of China. It's, it's its own entity and it's contentious and um, not everyone even agrees with, go- with being a tourist there and supporting, the, supporting that government and supporting that regime. Um, but I will say what's really funny about China is that um, for a lot of nations, you need a visa. Mm-hmm. It's a very strenuous, I wouldn't say it's strenuous because I apply, I, I have a current 10 year visa that expires in 2029. So I'm trying to go back at least one more time and get, mm-hmm. get that use out of that multi-entry visa. But, you know, I submit my applications, submit all my materials. Um, I got the visa approved. They put in the passport, they shipped it back. Cool. The first time I went to China was uh, when I was 14 and I was a part of a musical theater troupe actually that was based, that is based in Atlanta. And uh, we, we were booked shows in China. Well, interestingly enough, yeah, it was an African-American youth theater troupe and we booked a tour in China, um, you know, over 10 years ago. And that was my first time going to China. So we all had to do the visa process, make sure our passports were set. Anyways, when I was 14, first time entering China's border, I go there, you do this very like thorough fingerprint and like biometrics when you are entering the border. Oh, wow. So that was when I was 14. I went back to China when I was 23 
And I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I, I was remembering. I was like, let me do my fingerprints again. They're like, nope, we still got your biometrics on file. <gasps> we got all, we got your <laughs> fingerprints. We got, listen, I would not be surprised if they had samples of my hair. Oh, God. <laughs> They're like, we got all that. We got all that data. You're good. Let me, I see your visa. Let me stamp your passport. Go ahead and. Oh, that's all. Oh, we know God. exactly. <laughs> we knew. We already knew. We, we, we had already prepped it for a smooth entry into the People's Republic of China. And you know, so I, one of my closest friends um, lived in China. He, he left right after undergrad and he actually worked at um, a satellite campus for NYU. So that's where we went. And uh, he was working in Shanghai, lived in Shanghai, worked at NYU Shanghai, and um, was really immersing himself in, in Chinese culture. And they don't play. Like, that whole social currency system mm-hmm. where, like, Big Brother is watching you, that is not, like, sensationalism. That is a fact. Like, they're, like, citizens have um, essentially, uh, you know, a morality report card. And, I mean, they said there's cameras, they're watching you. They are. They are, and that, but that's and but that type of social control, um, which is negative in some aspects because it is very extreme, um, but also has really extreme positive outcomes. Like mm-hmm. I, there have been two places on Earth where I have felt the most safe, and two of those places have things in common. One is China, mm-hmm. and then one is Cuba. Hmm. Yeah. So you can that start to imagine, yeah. you know, what those similarities are, um, but also why. Uh, those type of those social structures in place make it so where it is so safe. And like, I, I could literally like in China could walk, I could drop my whole purse and someone's going to run behind me and be like, here's your purse. Here's your MacBook. Here's a thousand dollar camera. And they're going to chase you down. I mean, they did the same thing in Japan. Right. Um, And I don't know where I'm ending with this idea. I am both fascinated (laughs) and like, terrified simultaneously because the notion of that especially as an american and we live in a very individualistic society Mm -hmm. where like you know cameras or social all of that is very much not um in our social consciousness in america as americans but like then again you say like but there are benefits and i feel safe and again i think it's that interesting like Anywhere you go, there's mm-hmm. going to be that push, push and pull, pull where you have like this, you know, freedom and liberty, but control. And I, one thing I do appreciate though, is that it's not a situation where um, it's like heightened measures just because of tourists, like their society mm-hmm. is set up that way. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I see articles and they pop up oftentimes um, about Mexico where it's like, you know, they've increased, you know, safety measures or police presence or whatever. And the only purpose is to make sure tourists are safe because mm-hmm. they rely on those tourism dollars. Mm-hmm. So I do think that's something I appreciate. Like this is for everyone. This is for our citizens. This is for people that are here, mm-hmm. right. To ensure among other things, I'm sure. Um, but you know, safety and, and whatnot, as opposed to just let's keep the tourist areas really nice and really clean and really controlled. So they feel safe. And then let's just neglect, mm-hmm. you know, where the locals live. Mm. And that reminds me, that goes back to what I I was saying about survival for certain destinations because I will say when Tulum last week oh wow that there was a very visible police presence which I don't remember the first time because that was the second time I went and I, I didn't remember that the first time um but then in nations like Japan right and I mean gosh Japan j- just talking about Japan alone could be a whole other episode but um, Japan also has those systems in place. Singapore, all, it's not as crazy as China. Let me not, let me not misrepresent it. 
Um, but there is a certain level of um, putting the individual on the back burner to elevate the community that you see in places like Japan, that you see in places like Cuba, like the China, like, society. yeah, the collectivist societies in Singapore's where I know for a fact, I will, I can leave my MacBook out in the open and no one's going to lay a finger. In fact, someone may touch it because they think I might've forgotten it. They're going to try to find the owner. Like in, in Japan, um, earlier this fall, when I went, um, my brother-in-law left his whole backpack with his passport, wallet, ID, laptop, Sony camera at the Shinkansen train station from like Kyoto to Osaka. And when he realized it, and once we got to Osaka, he got right on the next train to go back to Kyoto. And lo and behold, it was at the lost and found office in the Kyoto train station. Mm. Nothing. That's touched. wild because if that was America, boy, <laughs> everything's gone. Just, yeah. just wish, just, just know that it's gone, and just start planning your next move because you're not, you're not getting nothing back. Not even the, not even the book bag it came in. <laughs> you think like the citizens of those those countries, like Japan, China, do they, do they have like any feelings towards Americans or outsiders coming in and feeling like? You are a black American, like mm. you may not follow the same protocols that we do as far as safety. So like, do they feel any sort of like sense of threatened towards you as a black person? Like, how are you welcomed and treated as a person of color in mm. some of those countries? I have had, that is a wonderful question. I have had a recent, I want to say recent revelation, a revelation that has been forming for a few years now. And I think I've just been able to like, recognize what it was and put language to it. And I think that when I leave the United States, my identity as an American trumps my race and it trumps my my appearance as a Black person. Mm. We've talked about that in Europe. Ooh, I'm interested to hear. I, I keep, keep going. I don't mean to interrupt you, no, but it's interesting because no, we've talked about that before. It's actually, it is actually very, it is wild. It is very, it is very wild how um, there is so much privilege, generally, because some people are very anti-American around the world, understandably so, understandably, understandably so, right. and they have, a, they and they do have a really big prejudice against Americans. But from my experience, I've noticed that that is very few and far between, and that most people revere Americans. And when you come over there, they're like, oh, they hear that accent. Or they see how you dress or, you know, God forbid they see that passport. They're like, oh my God, you're American. That is so cool. And they, and they, and they, and, and they treat you with a level of reverence that if I was Jamaican with a Jamaican passport, right. Mm-hmm. Or, um, Senegalese would, you know, the Senegalese passport would, would, would not have, would not receive. Um, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure Canada may be a little similar, um, because, yeah, kind of, kind of similar, you know. Level. Canada's just you diet America. America. <laughs> you get welcomed everywhere. You yeah. Go, no. Well, because you, well, because you don't have the anti-American sentiment yeah. kind of as a like Canadian. Like, no, you're safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but I think with America, it's so polarizing because they either love you as America, they just think, oh, you're so cool. You have like, you have such a culture that is like so influential around the world, or like. Oh, because of that, I can't stand you. Yeah, and that and that and that has been prioritized over my race, over my gender, even. Um, and I feel like in in most cases, it has been a crutch for me. 
And it, and it has um, given me the type of treatment experience that others who are black, but are not American may not receive. And it has, it has revealed a lot, a lot of privilege. I, I am, I think I'm in a season right now where I'm becoming more familiar and, it's, and, it, and it makes sense because the more I travel, the more, the more I'm exposed to it. I think I'm in a season where I am learning and becoming more familiar with my American identity and the implications of that. And that mm. has been at the forefront lately. And really reckoning with that privilege. It is a reckoning. It is a reckoning. Mm. I think I didn't realize, like, like, I know I'm American, obviously. I was born in the U.S. But identifying with America and as an American person and having to really, just like you said, like reckoning, um, it wasn't until we started traveling and going other places that I think it really hit me like, wow, I'm like American, like for better or worse. You know what I mean? I think when we're here, it's easy to identify with other aspects of our, um, you know, being right. Like I'm a black woman. I'm a woman. I'm this, that, the thing. even like um, Justin and I talk about this a lot, like I'm Southern, like that's just a part of my culture and heritage Same. and history. And then to go outside of the U.S. and it's just like to be tossed in the American pile. I'm like, <laughs> whoa. But it's also like fair, mm -hmm. you know? And then I think, again, to the point of like the privilege that comes with it, it's not just like, you know, less visa fee fees and, you know, free entry and this, that, and the third. But when we're in Europe, we've done a lot of... Um, like talking about the way that we're treated as black Americans versus like Africans from Africa. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more about that. It's, uh, it's, it really blows my mind because anti-blackness is global. Like, but mm -hmm. to your point, like the intersectionality of it all There's is tears just, to it. different there everywhere. There are tears, yeah. To, to be a black American versus to be like a black, like West African mm -hmm. in Spain. Mm -hmm. These are completely different, different experiences. Yep. Even if you look exactly, if I had an identical twin, yep. right? We walk in somewhere, they're going to hear how we speak. We're getting treated differently. Mm. Just off rip. Absolutely. And it's just like, it's hard because to navigate privilege when you kind of come from a place where like you don't have privilege to navigate with, it's like, mm. what do I do with this? And to sort of also go back to the beginning, like being a responsible traveler, then part of being able to travel responsibly is to really understand and make peace with the when, whys and hows of having privilege. And then to decide Oof. what you do with that. Yeah. Y'all preach it. Drop the mic. Mm -hmm. Like, people are like, I want to go to Florida or visit California. Even us. How yeah, many states Utah, have you right? been to? I've only been to maybe, like, a handful. So, right. yeah, yeah. Not even close to And it's funny because it's, it's interesting because U.S. tourism is the thing I want to focus more on in 2024. Like, yeah. I'm trying to see the United States. Yeah. There are some, yeah. there are so many gems here. And I'm just people like. People sleep on the U.S. Sweet. I think there's this glamorization of like international travel. Mm -hmm. And especially with social media, everyone's to go to the Maldives or they want to go, you know, drink coffee at a cafe in Paris or something like mm -hmm. this. And it's like, have y'all seen like some of what they have going on over in like Idaho? Have y'all seen Vermont? Have you seen Vermont? <laughs> have you seen Washington? Right. What? I'm trying. I've never been to Vermont and Washington, but I, those are literally two destinations that I'm going to in 2024 because the beauty is is out of this world. But 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 no one's. But so many. I mean, I can't speak for people outside the United States, but as Americans, folks are they do like glamorize Vermont. what? So I can eat apples. Yeah, like and they, it's like. <laughs> There's more. There's so much more. <laughs> so much more. Like Nebraska. Even I was looking at. Because I'm trying to pitch to a lot of tourism boards in the U.S., specifically 
with states that may not have a lot of demand. So it's actually really ironic that y'all brought this up. Um, like Arkansas, uh, Nebraska, like if, even if you look at their tourism board websites, it, you know, they don't look that great, right? They could really benefit from, from creators, um, you know, making content, making original content photography for these tourism boards. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think, I think all land, I think something that's really great about this planet is that there, this planet has so much beauty literally mm. in our, in our literal backyards. Yeah. So we can find that beauty in places like Nebraska and Arkansas, you know, who's going to Arkansas? What is even, who there? thinks now to think I want to go take a trip I'm to like, Arkansas? What, no is one's, Ar- what is an Arkansas? We don't know. What, what's I'm climate? sure there's a lot, but we is don't know. There? We don't know what they are. I don't know. I have no idea. And that's what I'm trying to find out. I'm like, I'm excited for you Arkansas. to find out. Thank and you. then let us know. I will. Because I want to see that content. Arkansas Tourism <laughs> Board. If you're watching this, I'm about to pitch. This is the one. Listen, this is the pitch. Listen, I'm going to bring all that to the forefront. <laughs> so you always knew you wanted to get into education and mm-hmm. teaching. Okay. Yeah. Since probably, actually, well, right, right when I entered undergrad, I took a, a seminar on urban education and it resonated with me so deeply. And I was like, I want to enter education. Yeah. Um, and I, I started off as a teacher because I wanted to get the experience in the classroom and I wanted to work with students. And in addition to that, because I knew I wanted to move past the classroom and do more policy work, um, which is what I'm in now. But um, I, I didn't, I, I did not feel that it was responsible to enter education without it well, particularly with what I wanted to do without teaching first. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I got the education degree. And right after undergrad, I taught in Miami. That's what brought me there. What is policy work? Um, you that's know, a great question. that is a great question. It, and then I was like, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> what is people don't know. Yeah. No, but, but, the con- <laughs> but, you know, I'm here to learn from y'all and vice versa. Yeah. It is a pouring, right. Of, of, of learning. Um, so po- policy work is, um, work is organizing, um, in a way to affect change in systems. And in the U.S. context, most of those systems deal with law. Um, so it deals with law or it deals with dollars that come from uh, from governing entities. So if you're looking at, um, you know, the federal level, ton of advocacy organizations. Because when, when you hear like advocacy or, oh, it's an advocacy, um, you know, nonprofit, really what they mean is, you know, this these people are working together because they want to see some type of law enacted. So oftentimes they'll work um, on a bill and we'll find if they're on the, you know, find a lawmaker. So if they're on the federal level, find a, um, a senator or someone in the house to be the sponsor of a bill, try to get it passed mm. um, because they want to see something different. So like that, like drafting actual legislation then some, and then trying some to get do. backing for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some, some policy work does that. The, w- the role that I'm in is for an, a, a nonprofit based out of Massachusetts. And the whole Massachusetts thing came because of Harvard. That's where that connection is. Yeah. So it's based in Massachusetts. And um, they work towards um, supporting paraprofessionals and becoming the certified classroom teachers. Hmm. Um, but we do that in an effort to diversify the teacher workforce. Because oh, okay. the teacher workforce around the country is, is largely disproportionate to the, to the students, particularly in the public school systems around the country. Um, the, the workforce is largely white women. And most of those students are not white girls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, over time, we've seen actually the population of white students enrolled in public schools 
decrease and decrease because a lot of them are exiting the public school system in the first place. So we see a large population of public school students that are of color um, and their teachers don't reflect that. And that can invoke a lot of issues and has. So there's a lot of organizations that are working to diversify the teacher workforce across the country. And um, the organization I work for um, is trying to do that in Massachusetts by specifically supporting paraprofessionals. So we're working with other um, organizations in Massachusetts, as well as in the, in New England in general to pass. There is a bill um, that we're working on called the Education Diversity Act that we're trying to pass through the state house of Massachusetts to become a Massachusetts law. So my organization is working with a collaborative of a bunch of other nonprofits to try to get that bill passed. And it usually is done that way with these collaboratives. It's a lot of work for one organization or for one team to do. So it it really does take a whole village to, to do this type of work. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, you're so inspirational. Stop. Oh my God. No, I'm, I'm so, you're I'm like so normal. shaping the no. future of America's <laughs> children. No. That's incredible. No. That's really like amazing that. work. I know. You. Yeah. I know it's like Thank a, you. you know, it's a travel podcast, but I mean, that's, you know, we're all, it's all connected people outside of our trips and travel and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just like really important, impactful work that you're doing. I think a big part of it is showing, I think in the travel space, there has been a lot of visibility for those that are full-time travelers and their travel brings them money in a multitude of ways. That could be a travel agent, that could be a content creator, could be an influencer, whatever. Um, But part of the accessibility is that it is still possible to travel and travel often um, and and not do it for work or to still have a nine to five or to still um, have other roles that are outside of of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's no right or wrong way. I think that the, you know, full-time travel influencer lifestyle works for a lot of people. And then for others, it may not work. That may not be accessible because they may, um, you know, have gone through school, uh, and have spent a lot of time and money and effort to get an MD and they don't want to mm-hmm. abandon that. And they still maybe feel a responsibility and a longing to be a practicing physician. But they still want to go to Spain and they still want to go to Argentina. They still want to go to Vietnam. And who's to say that they don't, they, they don't deserve that as well, that they don't deserve to take up space in the travel community despite not being full-time or despite not, you know, maybe going on a trip, you know, every three months as opposed to going to a new country every month like some other full-time or more frequent travelers. Mm, so I love that. Yeah. And I want to pull it back also for a second to – And thinking about making travel more accessible for people and thinking about like budget travel and thinking about, again, like um, that whole sphere of situations. What is sort of like some basic advice or tips that you can give to people where they're like, I don't want to be a digital nomad. I don't want to leave the country. I want to work my nine to five. I enjoy having benefits Mm -hmm. and, you know, a home. Mm -hmm. But I do want to see more of the world. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you have to say to them? Yeah. All right. I got a few tips. Uh, the first is, so really it's a combination of strategy, strategy with time off and how to request that time off strategy with where you're going. Um, because traveling to Jamaica or Bermuda on a two hour flight or three to four hours, depending where you are in the U S is different than taking a 12 hour flight to, um, you know, Japan or someplace like that. Um, strategizing the affordability of the trip, I think is a big one. When I was 
reporting in person to workplace as a teacher. I stacked PTO with um, long weekends, which a lot of people in like corporate American cultures also do because as a teacher, I get way more time away from the schoolhouse because it follows the student school schedule versus somebody in a corporate role or like maybe someone in medicine or even someone who's like a car mechanic and yeah. reports to the auto shop nine to five Monday through Friday. Um, but there are days where your workplace is closed and the operations are, you know, they're, 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 they, they cease. Definitely leverage those days and then take the PTO if you have them. I, I do want to acknowledge that a lot of the conversation in travel accessibility talks about PTO, but even that is a benefit. That is a privilege. Not everybody gets a, not everybody gets paid time off. Um, so I want to, I want to name that. Um, so if you don't have paid time off, you know, yeah, you have to work around not having that benefit, but I think it's possible then to budget and other areas of your life where you're saving that money to still be able to afford the trip and then still be able to afford all your bills if you do take time away from work and then you're not able to earn income for those days away. Um, it's, it's harder. Uh, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people since social media has become so ubiquitous and like all these courses and, you know, I'm an expert, this is how I do it. I think a lot of them oversimplify these things like, Oh my God, just follow these few tips and you could travel the world. Just like me. That's not true. This is hard. If I work at the Cheesecake Factory right. and I only I can only eat what I kill, right? I'm only earning money when I'm at work, physically in person serving tables, then your tips are not going to be helpful. Yeah. And they can't be used by people in those situations. So then you, you know, you have to strategize about like what is in my control. Okay, I can control how much I save, so I can save up for a trip. Can you travel uh like all the time in the situation? Maybe not. But I think that there are if someone wants to, I think the real answer, instead of being like, hey, follow these four tips and no matter who you are, you can travel the world like me. I think what is more helpful is if you really value travel and you enjoy it and it's something you want to do more often, here are some other steps you can take to shift things in your life around travel instead of shifting travel around your life. Mm -hmm. But not everybody is so gung-ho on travel where they're willing to do that. And, and that's fine, that's right? Totally it's their personal fine. decision to make. And that's that. And so if, for, for, if there is anyone watching and you do want to shift your life around travel because you want it as like the nucleus, then um, I think job, I think your, your, your work is a big part of that. Um, one good thing about COVID is that a lot of work has gone remote. And a lot of these roles that can be remote don't don't always require a fancy degree or a ton of experience. There's 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 such a big, I think, marketplace for um, people who have skills like copy editing, uh, being an executive assistant that can all be done online. So if you have you know if you can learn how to use a spreadsheet and draft emails, there's opportunity there, right? And that can even supplement your income. Let's say you still want to serve at the, the Cheesecake Factory and get your tips because you know you're going to come home with cash every day, um, but you want to travel more often. Okay, so maybe you can use some remote work, right, to supplement your in-person work so that when you mm -hmm. are taking time off of your in-person job, right, because you can't, you can't go to Spain and, go to the, and work at the Cheesecake Factory at the same time. <laughs> you can't. But when you're going to Spain, you might be able to put in a few hours at night or in the morning, and now you're earning money. Um, so you still have cash flow coming in where you're not earning those tips because you're not at work. Right. 
in um, in the classroom setting, this is an off topic, but kind of off topic. But in the classroom setting, did you notice like the kids who um, maybe weren't as privileged to travel as much? Like, how did they compare to the ones who maybe were like going on family vacations? Were there, you know, mm. did you did you see any of that at all? Or yeah. No? So I uh, I have I have experience working with students of really the two opposite ends of the class spectrum. Yes. When I was a teacher in Miami, I worked with um, students from extremely low, low income households and low income communities. And then I've worked, I actually currently work with students um, as like a college prep and readiness consultant. Mm-hmm. And just from the sound of that, you can imagine how the class difference of those students, of how their families can even afford this service in the first place. Um, what's really interesting, some some things I've noticed is that teenagers are teenagers, because that's what, that's how, that, that's the, the age group I've worked with. I've always worked with high schoolers. Um, oh, I love it. I prefer it. I prefer high you schoolers. Work with me as a high schooler. Uh-uh, keep me away from the little kids. I I don't want to work in the elementary. Middle schoolers are really Satan spawns. Speaking for no, no, no. My roommate was a middle school math teacher. That is a fact. Um, I remember myself as a middle schooler. No, I'm good. Give me the teenagers um, because they're really chill. They're actually very relaxed and they're still impressionable even at their older ages. Um, Teenagers are teenagers, whether they're the kids of millionaires or they're living in Section 8. And I think what's really revealing about my experience working with students is that is how more alike they are than similar. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, obviously, a big barrier for um, students from low-income backgrounds is being able to travel. But something that I tell my students, um, and even those that I've graduated, I still keep in touch with, you know, there are, people recognize that there is a gap and there are scholarships, there are programs that you are only eligible for, right? That these, that these rich kids aren't eligible for, that they don't have and, and really utilize these travel abroad scholarships or utilize these, or if students aren't in college, right? Because college is also a barrier. Not everybody goes to college. Everybody, not everybody can afford to, right? Not everybody wants to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans in order to do that, right? So if you're not in college, there are still so many um, programs, right? Peace Corps, work exchange, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, while you're young and before you have responsibilities to family or to career, that's the best time to do it. And that's what I tell my students all the time. Go do Peace Corps, go do work exchange, go ahead and move to Vietnam for a year, right? With your work visa and get that experience, yeah. right? Take that $50 flight then and fly over to Cambodia or Bali and utilize that. Um, and that can help be that that window of opportunity that, um, you know, with the other more affluent kids, right? Their family could just afford a trip to Bali and you may not, but there is money out there for you and you got to apply for it. You got to look for it. Speaking of Bali. Speaking um, of Bali. Oh, speaking of Bali. I need to promote. I need to plug myself. You are going. And let me tell you, when we were looking, I was like, you know what? I may have to, like, leave Justin and the kids at home or wherever we are. You should come. I'm trying to sell these slots. I'm so, listen, I'm trying to sell these slots to Bali. So I am um, hosting my first independent group trip. Independent as in it's a roaming with Romy group trip. I have, I've hosted group trips, um, for other travel organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, but have, has never been one that has, has been one in which I have led. 
um, as, as a traveler in this community. So I'm really excited. So Bali 2024, July 10th through the 16th, uh, we are doing Ubud. We're doing Changu. It's going to be wonderful. It is a, uh, a mix of everything. And I, and I chose the itinerary and I crafted it so that, um, it appeals to any type of travel style. So mm. we got lots of history and culture in there because come on, it's me. You got, you got to have a history and culture. Like that's, that's a given. We have food ex- experiences in there for my foodies. We have um, a lot of natural stuff, some hikes, some waterfalls. Uh, we got some nightlife for my party animals. <laughs> we got beach time and relaxation for the beach bums. Um, and then I'm also offering two workshops. Um, one is about content creation. Um, and again, I'm not an expert, but I am happy to, to share what I've learned along the way. Um, so a lot of people have asked, you know, what camera do you use? How do you edit your videos? How do you edit your photos? Um, you know, and I'm happy to share those systems during that workshop. And the second workshop is about budgeting. Mm. I, so that's kind of where the big part of like the budget travel come in. So I'm sharing, (laughs) I'm sharing not only budget tips about, um, how I make and organize, um, a lower cost trip, but also day-to-day budget lifestyles that allow me to afford the trip in the first place. Cause let's be honest, you have to be able to afford travel. You got to get that cash. You got to get that money. You got to get that income from somewhere. Um, you have to make the cash from somewhere. And a, lar- a large part of that is budgeting. I think sometimes it's harder to earn more money, but what's easier is controlling how we spend the money we already earn. Mm. And that is um, going to be a big focus of that workshop, of the budget workshop. Uh- Along with other tips of like different strategies I use, but a big focus really is like addressing the cause of the symptoms. How are you spending your money and how is that preventing, possibly preventing you from traveling as, as you would. And sometimes it's rough. Like it, listen, this economy is, is, is difficult, right? It's a dog eat dog world. Inflation is really decreasing our spending power. Um, and I want to acknowledge my privilege, even in saying this, right. Of, of being able to, to have the type of work where I can earn this money, um, but you know, we just got to take what we have and what I have looks different from you and what you have looks different from that person. And that's just the reality of it. But what we do, what we, our power does lie in the choices we are able to make. And I think that's really what, what I want to keep the focus on. I love that workshops in the group. So it's like a, I'm trying to remember. So it's like a three for one. Because yep. there's like the trip with all yep. these destinations and then also the workshops. So I, I've i never been to Indonesia. Um, what are the, like, what's like the vibe mm. of like these different places where you're going to be going? Like city versus beach versus, mm-hmm. oh my God, over there. I'm really Always sitting here plotting. I'm like, can I, what am I doing next summer? <laughs> so, so Bali, um, you know, has been a tourist hotspot in Indonesia for a, a since the 70s, 80s is when it started to pick up. Because there was a, um, in the 50s and 60s, there was um, a lot of civil unrest in, on the island. Um, a lot of violence, unfortunately. But Bali has um, been able to progress beyond that. And they obviously draw a lot of their economy from tourism. Um, most of Bali, most of the tourism is in the um, southern half of Bali. So when you, you know, you, I'm sure you have heard of names like Seminyak, Ubu, Changu. Like I went to Bali for the first time um, of August 2022. 
but I've, I've been posting about travel online for years before that. So I've always heard of these names, but I'm like, what is Seminyak? What is Ubud? And what does that mean? Um, so to answer your question, um, Ubud, they, all of them have different vibes. So, and I actually have made content about this before. I was like, which part of Bali is right for you? Um, Ubud is a, a very, what we see as like the quintessential Bali. So a lot of temples, a lot of, uh, a lot of rice farms and fields, mm. um, a lot of Zen. <laughs> um, I mean, Bali, Indonesia is, is a Muslim majority country. Fun fact, Indonesia actually is, um, has the biggest population of Muslims anywhere in the world. Really? It is the biggest. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought I learned it's I, interesting. I, I assumed, I don't know. The most Muslims in the world. Nope. The most Muslims in the world are in Indonesia. Wow. It is, it is, and it is actually the biggest Muslim majority country in the world based on population because Indonesia has a high population and that's where that comes from because they already have such a high population. Most of them are Muslim, but in Bali, what's unique about Bali is that Bali is a Hindu majority population and they have a very unique, um, Hinduism that, uh, is, has its own flair than, um, kind of different sects or forms of Hinduism that we see elsewhere in the world. Um, so Ubud captures that. Um, Changu, from my experience going last year, is, is where all the digital nomads and influencers and content creators are. It is mm-hmm. so trendy. Um, I appreciated it because it had like, great restaurants. Um, it's fun. Um, I didn't really appreciate how un-Balinese it felt. And I felt like I entered this bubble where I was not in Bali and I was not in Indonesia because all I saw were non-Indonesians. Everyone there was Australian or from the UK or American. It was so many white people. I'm like, if I wanted to see all these white people in Indonesia, I would have just went, to, if I would have flew to Australia, Actually, if I wanted to see all those white folks. Content, that's, that's really what I see. It's just white yeah, people. It's so, so Changu, Seminyak as well. Seminyak is a little bit more, tra- Seminyak and like a Kuta are a little bit more traditionally tourists so they're they're like they're very family friendly you'll have a lot of um international businesses like a zara and h&m a starbucks and then when you go a little bit more uh northwest along the coast that's when you go to changu and that's when you see a lot of the hipster cafes with this like pistachio latte and everyone's with their laptops and they're you know have their fancy cameras wrapped around their content creators and there's a lot of beach clubs and there's a lot of vegan restaurants Tulum. as a veg it is <laughs> Tulum. it's actually a much larger tulum. larger tulum it is a larger tulum um and it felt very unbalinese to me which for some people they they love those communities a lot of people basically move to bali and they just stay in changu um, for me, I, I'll still visit cause I think there's things that are in Chengdu that aren't elsewhere in Bali that I can appreciate like the beach clubs, right? Mm-hmm. Fins is wonderful. Y'all fin- I've heard the hype about fins. It is worth the hype. Y'all need to go to fins. I know. Fins it is so much fun. <laughs> July 10th through the 16th. Get, get your child care. Yes. I think y'all both should go. I do have, um, early bird, uh, slots still available. Um, so the cost of the trip, not including flights is $1,900 U.S., Um, and I did that on purpose because I want the trip to be affordable. I priced the trip down. It includes basically almost everything except your flight and like personal meals and personal spending. So if you want to go buy a bottle of 1800, that's on you, (laughs) but it does include all the accommodations. Um, 
I have seen the hotels. They're, they're nice hotels. It includes um, all activities, includes all in-country transportation. It includes um, a number of meals, it includes a lot of breakfasts, includes a lot of dinners. Um, and honestly, I, when I was in Bali, I went for two weeks. And I spent more than nineteen hundred dollars. And this trip, and you get the value of the workshops, which is amazing. And I, I, in in the first week I was in Bali, I spent more than nineteen hundred dollars. And I actually did way less. I spent a lot of time just at the (laughs) at the villas with my friends, just working or lounging. So it's a much more active trip. Um, It's price lower. There's a lot of value in it, and I did that on purpose because I obviously I, I want people to get value out of it. I want it to be affordable. Um, it does not include the flight, but I'm happy to help folks find flights. Um, and with the trip, trip operator, you can purchase your slot and then pay in payment plans with the firm. So I have a few people doing that now, um, and they're able to stretch it out over six, 12 or 18 months. Um, and that it was also important to me yeah. because not everybody got $1,900 in cash. I think most Americans do not have $1,900 in cash that you can just throw down on this trip or throw on a credit card and pay it back. So that payment plan, I think is also really helpful in that accessibility. accessibility. So y'all pull up both of y'all, everybody watching. I still got early bird slots for $1,700. A fun fact about the the early bird slot. So I have a friend who, who booked um, an early bird slot. She was one of the first to purchase. She did do a 12 month payment plan on a firm. So with the interest or like the usage fee that a firm charges, it still came up to $1,900. So she basically, she did not pay over the price tag of the trip. Okay. Okay. So yeah, we're going to Bali. I know. We've agreed. (laughs) Yeah. You already got the dates. We can look for flights. I'll help y'all out. (laughs) Extra right now. Honestly. Well, that's dope. And um, honestly, I think that's... Yeah. I really, you know what? This has been a great conversation. We should hang we, out outside we were of this. Chatting yeah. before, Seriously. <laughs> and you were saying you just got a tattoo and immediately I'm like, of what? And you're like, star signs. And I'm like, oh. And the second we went through, I'm like, give me your big six. You yeah. just laid them out. It's like, how do you know what I meant? I know. I'm like, oh, no one ever She does. knows what I'm talking about. Because typically people are like, I don't know. What's, I mean, I know like my, February. I think I know what my moon is. And I'm just like, no, I know the whole, girl, I'll lay out, I'll lay out the whole birth chart. We'll have to look chart, at charts after this. I have mine and his and his right okay. my phone's a off to do the whole okay thing. but i know justin's like okay wrap it up wrap yeah, it up no we <laughs> yeah well we so appreciate you being here and love and appreciate the mission of being able to make travel more accessible and more approachable to mm-hmm. so many people that really just want to get out and see the world so y'all you do not have to sell everything and pack up your kids if you have them and travel <laughs> the world full-time like us.